Before I begin this episode, I want to open with a brief disclaimer. During this episode, there will be mention of triggering topics, including suicide and depression. Listener discretion is advised. hope you're doing well. I wanted to include just this super quick update. I know a lot of y'all have been tweeting at me and sending me messages and stuff asking about how my husband Peter's doing. He's His kidney function is getting better, so that's one very, very good piece of news that I can share. Um, the other thing is the kidney uh, seems to be starting to wake up, so that's really good, and I hope that means, you know, that we can get out of this hotel room soon. I hope that means we can get going back home, get back to our normal life. So it's just a it's just a waiting game, you know, like it's been for all these weeks that we've been here. But I wanted to thank you guys for sending the good vibes, prayers, whatever you've been sending our way. It's been very, very appreciated. So thanks guys, you're the best. Today we're gonna be talking about Timothy Pitson. May eleventh, two thousand and eleven was the day that everything would change for the Pitson family. It began like any other day. Thirty nine year old Jim Pitson and his forty three year old wife, Amy Fry Pitson lived a completely normal looking life, at least on the outside, the typical Midwestern life, if you will. Their six-year-old son, Timothy, was a happy, vivacious boy, not seeming to lack for anything. Timothy was Jim and Amy's only child. They were comfortable, they seemed to live this comfortable life, and to outsiders, they seemed happy. Again, I'm sure you're picking up on this theme, seemed, seemed to outsiders. But there had been trouble brewing in their relationship that strangers didn't know about, as well as serious bouts of depression from Amy. Let's take a step back and look at some of Amy's early life. Amy had undergone some serious mental health issues in her lifetime. It was doing it was during their dating relationship that Jim discovered Amy had a very troubled past. Amy had been married three times and divorced three times, and she had tried to complete suicide twice. The first time she tried to complete suicide was before she met Jim. According to a Chicago magazine, she had an argument with her then-husband, Greg Campbell, and she then parked her car on the train tracks in Ames, Iowa, in front of the coming train, only to pull away at the last minute after reconsidering. After that scare, she checked herself into a psychiatric ward to get the help that she needed. She stayed for about a week and received drugs to help with her depression. When she was released from the psychiatric ward, Amy was sent home with a prescription for an antidepressant, which she took for a little while, but she then stopped taking it around the time her and Greg Campbell divorced in 2000. The second time she attempted suicide was when her and Jim Pitson were dating. Amy was just leaving for a job interview and heading home when she became overwhelmed, anxious, and had a deep sense of hopelessness. Amy pulled her car over alongside the road by an embankment. She took a bunch of sleeping pills and then she sat alongside the road over the embankment and fell over the cliff. Amy had first met Jim at a party and the two of them dated long distance for a while before finally marrying in 2004. 
Amy became pregnant the next year in 2005 and gave birth to a little boy who she named Timothy. She added an extra M to Timothy's name to, quote, make him more special, end quote. Timothy seemed to be her pride and joy. He was her whole world and everything he, everything she did in her life revolved around him. All of her attention wanted to be on him all of the time. Amy and Jim continued to have a rocky marriage. I mean, again, like most couples, well, hopefully not most, like a lot of couples do. They did argue quite frequently about money. Uh, that seems to be like one of the main things that couples seem to argue about, but they did it quite, quite frequently. And Amy constantly took vacations with her friends, according to Jim, and this was another contention for them to fight. Amy even threatened Jim with a divorce not long before she and Timothy would eventually disappear. And Jim had allegedly told her during this argument that they had that he would take Timothy from her. Let's go back to the day that Timothy disappeared. Now, Amy went to work that morning and nothing about her behavior stuck out as unusual to Jim. Jim saw her as she left for work, wished her a good day, and then Amy left. Now, Jim Pitson, it was his job to take his son to school. He loaded his son, six-year-old Timothy, into the vehicle and took him to school that morning like normal. Timothy was in kindergarten at an Aurora, Illinois elementary school, and he just loved kindergarten. Timothy was a happy, vibrant, full-of-life little boy. He loved school, he loved being with his friends, and he absolutely loved learning. Jim opened the car door, gave Timothy his Spider-Man backpack, said he loved him, and watched as Timothy walked into class. Jim had no idea that this would be the last time he would ever see Timothy. How would he have known? It was just a normal day, normal routine, dropping off Timothy at kindergarten. After Jim dropped Timothy off at school, Timothy's mother, Amy, arrived at the school a little less than a half hour after he was dropped off, and that time was between 8.10 and 8.15 a.m. Amy told the school officials that there was a family emergency and she had to take Timothy home. However, upon further uh, kind of looking into this as, uh, you know, the disappearance kind of came out in the news and they were trying to figure out, you know, what time Amy took Timothy... When they were talking to Jim, there was no emergency. There was no reason, true reason, that she had to pull him out. Amy signed Timothy out of school at 8.30 that morning and walked him out of the building. And there is security footage of them leaving the school together. In this specific photo that's shared from this footage, um, which I will share this photo on social media, Amy's walking a step or two ahead of uh, Timothy. She's reaching out her hand back like she's going to hold his hand as they walk out the door. Very normal, uh, very unassuming behavior on the outside. In the surveillance picture, Timothy is wearing shorts and he has his Spider-Man backpack, which just like absolutely hurts my soul. Amy takes Timothy to the first location. She takes him to the car uh, that she brought and she drives him to LaGrange, Illinois. She then drops off her Ford Expedition to a mechanic at about 10 a.m. that morning. She drops off the vehicle and has an employee at the auto shop take her and Timothy to a local zoo, the Brookfield Zoo that was nearby. So this kind of made sense, you know, like the zoo's nearby. She drops off her car at the mechanic and this way they don't have to wait at the shop for the vehicle. They could seemingly have like this fun day and be entertained by the zoo while they waited for the car to be done. Amy and Timothy spent most of the day there just looking at all of the exhibits and all the animals. 
no really weird behavior noticed or sticking out here at all. It just seems like a mother and son enjoying a day off together at the zoo. They stay here at the zoo until about three that afternoon when the car is finally done. When the school was let out, Jim had gone back to the school to pick up Timothy because that's the usual routine for him. But he was very, very confused and starting to get a little worried when he realized that Amy had already signed him out and not just signed him out at the end of the day, had signed him out at the very beginning of the day, right after he had been dropped off. I'm sure so many questions were ranging in Jim's mind. Where were they going? Why didn't Amy tell me that she was going to go somewhere with Timothy today? And so he's trying to call Amy, trying to call her, and she doesn't answer his phone calls. They keep going to voicemail. So where were they? It was very unlike Amy with this kind of behavior, and Jim was very, very concerned. Instead of going home after the zoo and the car maintenance, Amy and Timothy drove 45 miles to Key Lime Cove Indoor Water Park and Resort in Gurney, Illinois. They checked in that same day on May 11th, and then they checked out the next morning after spending the night. That morning of May 12th, after checking out at around 10 that morning, Amy and Timothy drove 170 miles to the Wisconsin Dells from Gurney, Illinois. Now, the Wisconsin Dells is actually my neck of the woods, so this is really hearing all of these places that they stopped in the Dells. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been there, <laughs> done that, been there. It's kind of weird. It's really weird when a true crime case like this connects to you based on, you know, your location. I just think that's kind of odd. Back to their trip. They checked in the Wisconsin Dells. There's this water park called the Kalahari Resort. And she checked them both into that resort for the night. It's another uh, indoor water park. They checked out the next morning, May 13th. And Timothy is seen here on the security footage. He's seen at about 10 a.m. that day. He's in that checkout line with his mom, checking out of the hotel. And this is the last time that we see Timothy on footage. But there is proof, um, so there's proof here that he's with her at this Kalahari hotel, but we don't see her, we don't see him, excuse me, at the next hotel that Amy goes to. Now, let's talk about how they were, she was contacting family. Between 12 and 1.30 p.m. that same day, two hours after we last saw Timothy on the security footage at the hotel checking out, Amy started contacting people. Now, the only contact that she had was with her mom, uh, she said that her and Timothy were fine. They just needed a few days to breathe and have space. And then the second call was to her brother-in-law. And she called to tell him that Timothy was fine. He's having a fun time. She also called her brother-in-law, relaying the same informa information that she had to her mom. And she also allegedly said, quote, Timothy is fine. Timothy belongs to me. Timothy and I will be fine. Timothy is safe, end quote. Seems very kind of rigid, very kind of just disconnected. And just reusing re 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 his name, Timothy is fine. Timothy belongs to me. Timothy and I will be fine. Timothy is safe, you know. That just seems very robotic to me, almost like she's just going through the motions. And I do think it's weird that she called her brother-in-law. I mean, I have a super, I have a close relationship with my brother-in-laws. But at the same time, it's like, why didn't she call her husband? Why didn't she just call his brother? The calls she made to her mom and brother-in-law, they originated northwest of Sterling, Illinois, en route. 40. And in the background of these calls, Timothy can be heard. In the background, you can hear him saying, you know, he's hungry, asking when it's time to eat. Typical child in the car behavior. Sometime between these phone calls and 7.25 p.m., six hours, give or take, something 
happened to little Timothy because it seems like he vanishes. We went from seeing him on the security footage in the hotel to hearing him in the background on the phone call and then we can't track him anymore on any footage or any audio. At 7.25 that night, Amy is at a dollar store in Winnebago, Illinois. At this store, she purchased pen, paper, and envelopes. At 8 o'clock, Amy's sighted again without Timothy in Winnebago still at a Sullivan's food store. The next time we see her, Amy checks into a hotel in Rockford, Illinois called the Rockford Inn very late Friday night at 11.15. The Rockford Inn is 53 miles away from the family's home in Aurora, but again, Timothy is not seen with her on this footage. She's alone on the footage. She asks for a room for just one and goes to her room. The next morning, hotel staff were horrified to find Amy's dead body in the room alone. My guess is housekeeping was the one who discovered her. And can you imagine how horrifying and how traumatic that would have been for them? We always talk about like what it would be like. And I I know you've heard other true crime podcasters say this too, but what would it be like to discover a body? Uh, It would be horrible. I feel like it would be absolutely terrible from that moment on. I feel like you just have this picture of this individual in your head at all times, just chilling in your brain waiting for it to pop up randomly and I just I would I would assume at least that that would be very traumatizing the question in everyone's mind and the question that is still in everyone's mind 10 almost 11 years later is where is Timothy Amy's body is discovered dead in this room why wasn't he with her between 11 p.m and 7 25 p.m on May 13th 2011 What happened to Timothy Pitson and where did Amy take him? Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. We are Podcast by Proxy, a Canadian true crime podcast. Our primary focus is Canadian cases, but sometimes we travel south of the border and love listener suggestions. Join us every Tuesday where we talk about some of the not-so-polite Canadians. You can find us at Podcast by Proxy wherever you listen to your podcasts and on all social media platforms. So his employer eventually finds out about his criminal past, though, and releases him from employment. He gets a job selling hot dogs on Main Street for a while before he lands a permanent job as a salad maker for G&G Foods, and he worked, like, late overnights at this job. So this guy literally tossed salads for a living? Correct. Okay. A murderous (laughs) salad tosser. Oh, lordy. Now we're at the investigation, so let's look at the hotel first. Let's talk about what was found, what wasn't found in the investigation. Amy's wrists had been slit, but there was no sign of Timothy. She didn't even have his belongings with her in that hotel room. It was just like Timothy had vanished without a trace. There were other things missing from her room too. In addition to Timothy and all his belongings, another thing that was missing is the outfit she had worn when she picked him up. That outfit was missing. She'd been wearing a white or a light pink shirt, brown capri pants, and sandals. Now, why would the outfit she was wearing be gone? Why would she have gotten rid of it? I mean, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, if our brains are on the same wavelength, it's that there was something on her clothing that she had to remove. Obviously, I don't want to think like this, but maybe she had some blood on her clothing and maybe that's why she just got rid of it. Or maybe 
maybe she spilled food on it and you know she's like on the run she's kind of just not her mind isn't really thinking I can take this and wash it maybe just get rid of the clothing I don't want to jump to the bad thoughts first who knows why she would have got rid of this clothing also missing from the hotel room that was very odd was her cell phone but what they did find in the hotel room was a suicide note the note didn't leave any closure however it left more questions Instead of saying exactly what happened to Timothy in the letter, she only said that Timothy was, quote, with people who love him and will care for him, you'll never find him, end quote. Also in the letter, she seemed to talk directly to her mom and said, quote, I've taken him somewhere safe. He will be well cared for. And he said that he loves you, end quote. Very, very, very ominous. And also, uh, is that letter for Jim, like for the world, for police? Who is the message, quote, you'll never find him, And quote. Who is that supposed to be for? That was kind of in my mind. Like, who is she, she saying this to? Just, just everyone? Just Jim? Was she hiding Timothy from Jim? Who knows? When investigating the hotel room, obviously police are worried that she did something to Timothy and it's a murder-suicide situation. But one interesting aspect is while Amy's knife that she used to complete suicide had her blood on it, it did not, in fact, have Timothy's blood on it, which is a huge, huge relief. Amy's car was found in the hotel's parking lot, and it when it was found and examined, quote, a concerning amount of blood, end quote, was found in the car in the back seat where Timothy would have been seated. Another very concerning fact along, I would put this concerning fact with the missing clothing, because to me, that doesn't paint a pretty picture if you're looking at the two side by side, if you're looking at this whole thing in context, knowing she killed herself, now there's a missing boy, it just doesn't leave a good feeling in your mouth. At first, this is of course very concerning, all things considered, but family members about, when talking about the blood, would later say Timothy had gotten a bloody nose earlier that month and that the blood in the car was from that. Forensic analysis were never able to determine how old the blood stains were or if they were fresh stains. Upon further investigation of the car, it also had some natural debris and looked like the car had been parked in a grassy area, possibly near a stream. This area also was determined to have oak and birch trees nearby, and at one time on this trip, she drove on a road that had road marking beads, which is very, not unusual, but it's, um, it's something to take note. Uh, it was also determined that Amy had visited this location with her vehicle more than once, giving officers the idea that she had been planning this. According to an article by Ranker, quote, authorities discovered a mineral called anhydrite on the vehicle. If forensics teams ever figure out where it occurs in nearby soil, police may be able to pinpoint exactly where Timothy went missing, end quote. So that material anhydrite is very important. Uh, like I said, like they said in the quote, to determining where he went missing. If we can just find out where that material came from, maybe we'll be able to pinpoint what happened to Timothy. Amy's cell phone would later be found, according to police, quote, alongside the road on Illinois Route 78, north of Mount Carroll, end quote. Unfortunately, nothing of interest or pertaining to the case was found on her cell phone, and according to the Aurora Police Detective Lee Katfu, he said to people, quote, Every person I've talked to has said Amy would never hurt Timothy. Therein lies the mystery. No one in her life has been aware of her falling off of the grid before or having unaccounted for blocks of time where she might have been able to accomplish this. 
end quote. Now, this has been years since this event happened, and Timothy's father still is holding hope and believing that Timothy might be alive. He's holding out hope that someday he'll get the call that he's been found. I want to read some of the responses um, from the family. This is some quotes by T Jim Pitson. Quote, you don't leave your children. You don't give your children away. I had some trouble forgiving her for what she did to herself. I don't think I can ever forgive her for what she did to her child. I always wonder what she told Timothy. Why hasn't he tried to call? We taught him how to dial 911. We said, this is your number. This is your mom's number. You know where you live, your address, all the stuff you do. We got one of those little ID cards for kids with his fingerprint and his name and a picture of him. So if he got lost somewhere, you could find him, end quote. He also said, quote, depression is a sickness. It is something that has to be treated. It can't be ignored. I forgive, but it's going to take a lot to get over this. It's taken a lot of therapy and a lot of searching and going through it day after day after day to learn that it wasn't my fault. She had planned this for a while because you don't just do something like this without having some plan that goes along with it, end quote. Timothy Pitson's case has stalemated for many years, but it came to just like a rocky halt when a young man came forward saying that he was, in fact, the long-lost Timothy Pitson. On April 3rd, 2019, eight years since Timothy vanished, a man turned up on the streets of Newport, Kentucky. He had obviously either been assaulted or else caused harm to himself intentionally because he was covered in bruises and seemed very, very upset. He got someone's attention and frantically claimed that he had just escaped from his kidnappers and was trying to find his way back home. He told the people helping him that he was Timothy Pitson, the long-lost boy, and he'd been trying to make his way home this entire time. Good Samaritans helped him to a hospital and took him to the emergency room at a children's hospital in Cincinnati. This man was checked, police were called, and when he was asked if his fingerprints could be taken to identify him, he declined. Which, right away, you know, little red flags going up. That's only one of the red flags that would pop up during this surprising announcement. The next one is the man didn't look like a 14-year-old. Rather, he looked like late teen young adult age and he had a five o'clock shadow. Granted, I'm sure some 14-year-olds can grow that, but it's more unlikely. He, he, just, he just looked more mature than a 14-year-old. Now, the man told a story of abuse that occurred at the hand of his captors for many, many years. A DNA swab was taken from Timothy's dad and compared to DNA from this man, and unfortunately, the results came back negative. This man was not 14-year-old Timothy Pitson, like he claimed, but in fact, he was 23-year-old Brian Michael Reaney from Medina, Ohio. Medina, Ohio is about three and a half hours from where he was found in that area of Newport, Kentucky, which I thought was interesting. I don't know what to do with that information, but it's like he traveled from that area only to make his announcement three and a half hours away. I don't know. For some reason, that information just sat wrong with me. Brian was a convicted felon who had just been released from an Ohio prison March 7th, 2019, where he had been serving 14 months for burglary and vandalism. So maybe that's why he was in that area. That makes more sense. <laughs> and listen to me, just like making guesstimates on this podcast. <laughs> Sorry, just thinking out loud. That's how my brain works. Now, Brian had falsely claimed that he was a prospective home buyer for a Cleveland suburban home on the market when actually he used the home to party, ranking up over $400,000 in damages to the home, and that was why he was serving time. 
He also later admitted to his deceit and kind of said why he claimed to be Timothy because he said he had been watching a 2020 documentary of Timothy and he basically decided that he wanted this family and he wanted to be Timothy. He stated that he wanted to leave his own family and that he wanted a new family. Now, I couldn't find out why I looked everywhere. I don't know if documents on the wire sealed because they detail abuse of a minor or if there's no documents because it's not because it's just not true. I don't know which one is is right. I hesitate to place all the blame on him without knowing his back history or his complete mental health breakdown. But before you freak out at me, let me just say this. I It's absolutely horrendous to make a false claim like this. I'm not letting him off the hook. I'm not going to pretend that this isn't the most evil and horrible thing you can do to a grieving family and a family longing for their child back. Like, it's it's evil. It's disgusting. Let's call it what it is. I get it. But I don't know because part of me is wondering if there's some things just not clicking with this guy mentally. And also, I hesitate to attack him right away because I don't know enough of his background. I don't want to point all the blame at him when, you know, who knows? Maybe he was living this horrible life and just wanted to be someone else and just wanted to be someone whose family loved him. And and maybe he maybe he truly thought that he could be this missing boy. And maybe in his mind, as he was going through what he was going through at home, he just kind of moved. I mean, I'm not a psychologist by any means, but maybe in his mind, he just put himself in Timothy's place, put himself as someone who had a loving family waiting for him instead of this horrible life that he said he was living. Brian stated that he had been held in a hotel room by two men and he had been sexually abused and assaulted for ages before escaping. And if that's true... That's just absolutely horrible. If that's true, Brian is a victim. And I can't say that for sure. That's just speculation on my part. And we have to take this guy at his word, which is risky because he has a past of making false claims. For instance, he claims to be a juvenile sex trafficking victim on multiple occasions. And plus, the claim that he had wanted to purchase this house when he hadn't, the claim to be Timothy... I, even even with that background and what I know about him, I just don't feel right condemning him entirely, at least until I have all the facts. And, and, and I'm not sure that we will ever have all the facts because I'm not sure if we can take him at his word or not, truthfully. He, he's untrustworthy. I don't know if what comes out of his mouth is truth or lie. But I will say on what he's done to the family is he's caused the Pitson family so much unnecessary hurt. And for that, for that, he can't be forgiven. And, and I guess that's the way my brain is wrapping around this. Honestly, I personally lean to tend towards uh, he's making all of this up because of his two prior claims, you know, his prior cry wolf actions. But it just leaves a pit in my stomach to deny his claims completely, especially when it feels like I don't have the whole story here. So that's where I'll leave that. I just wanted to share my thoughts on that situation. Timothy's family responded and, you know, I'm sure the way you'd imagine, and I'm going to read some quotes from the family right now. Timothy's aunt, Kara Jacobs said, quote, it's devastating. It's like reliving that day all over again, end quote. Timothy's grandmother, Elena Anderson, said, quote, It's been awful. We've been on tender hooks, hopeful and frightened. 
It's just been exhausting. I feel so sorry for the young man who's obviously had a horrible time and felt the need to say he was somebody else. End quote. Brian Reaney was arrested and charged, and later in court, he pled guilty to aggravated identity theft in January of 2020. I found the document of the criminal complaint against him, and it was filed in Hamilton County and the Southern District of Ohio, even though reports say uh, Brian approached individuals in Newport, Kentucky. Newport, Kentucky is only two miles away from the Hamilton County Courthouse, so that's why it says both places in multiple sources, so don't let that confuse you. And you listening are probably like, I really don't care. But it really bugged me. And it took me like 30 minutes to find out why in one place it said Ohio and one place it said Kentucky. Well, that's why. (laughs) Brian Reaney was sentenced to two years behind bars, but he was given credit for time served. So he only had to spend an additional four months before being released under supervised release. Other stipulations he had um, for his release were he was to no longer consume drugs or alcohol and he was to never get in contact with any of Timothy's family. Kyle Healy, an assistant attorney, said it best, I think, when he said, quote, he needs to understand that when he tells lies like this, it does cause damage. It hurts people. It hurts their families, and it takes law enforcement away from the very serious job of helping children who have been sex trafficked, end quote. So that happened in 2019, 2020, and sadly, And just so surprisingly, no other updates have happened since then. And you can't even call Brian Reaney's accusation as an update on Timothy's case. If anything, it's just a distraction from Timothy's case. We really haven't had an update on Timothy's case since his disappearance. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the theories as to what happened to six-year-old Timothy. The first theory and the most popular theory in this case is that Timothy was killed by his mother, Amy. Well, why would she have done this? Amy was threatening divorce from Jim. She wanted to be free, and she felt like Jim would take Timothy away from her, as he allegedly had said at one point. Timothy was hers. She viewed him as her possession, and the thought of someone taking him away from her horrified her. She couldn't have that. She gave him a great, you know, quote-unquote, last day, and then took him to a remote area and killed him. But there are problems with this theory. Why haven't we found him yet? Psychoanalysis argue against this theory that Amy killed him. They say that if Amy were to take Timothy's life, she would have done it in the hotel where she took her own life, not in a remote location and then leave him alone. A journalist named Denise Crosby said, quote, We know that mothers can kill their children, even mothers who loved their children. We know from other stories we've heard. We can't understand someone who is struggling with mental illness and what they can or can't do, and it's hard for us to understand that, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, end quote. Basically, what she's saying is don't discount that it could be possible, Uh, rather a little unlikely. It could still be possible. The second theory is that Amy gave Timothy away. Deep down, I really don't want to believe that Timothy was killed. Deep down, I just can't accept that. So this is the theory I always gravitate towards, and not just because I can't handle the thought that she killed her son, but there's some good merit to this theory. The prevalent theory that Amy gave Timothy away to an Amish family is not that outrageous, and let me explain. First, she's made two trips to Amish country and passing, so she may have seen, you know, their way of life, maybe even spoken with some Amish folks and just decided that that was the environment she wanted her son to grow up in. 
Second, the natural debris found on her vehicle would be consistent with debris found in Amish country. Third, taking him to the Amish would be the perfect way for her to be assured that he'd stay hidden off the grid as Amish don't believe in electricity or TV, you know, so they wouldn't be aware of Timothy's missing status. And fourth, it would also make sense why Timothy hasn't called his dad or his family yet. Most of the Amish don't have cell phones. They have to borrow their neighbors' phones. They don't have, you know, electricity. So he wouldn't have access to call anyone. Jim had taught his son, you know, the family phone number and his information and made sure he memorized it. So if he had a phone, chances are he would make a phone call to his dad. There was a random sighting in 2014 by a woman who claimed she saw a boy who she says resembled Timothy Pitson at a garage sale. She called it in and it must have fell through because nothing came from that. I'm sure the police have gotten thousands of sightings of people seeing boys who look like Timothy. And eyewitnesses aren't very reliable, but I always want to say this. It is better to call and be safe than not call at all or assume someone else will take care of it. Please call. Please, please, please always call if you have a funny feeling, if you have like a really just bad, like a bad feeling, like you're looking at something and your instincts are kind of like going, you know, ding, 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 like ringing these bells, just call. The worst you can do is, the worst that can happen is nothing is wrong. Like that's why I don't understand when people are like, oh, I can't call 911. I, I, I couldn't call. The worst thing that could happen is someone be like, oh, nope, you know, that's not him. Thanks for the call. Bye. Like that's it something so minor could happen and then on the flip side something so fantastic could happen that what if this boy had end up being timothy this woman who had this weird feeling at a garage sale could have saved his life found him and reunited him with his family so i that just i don't i don't know <laughs> i know i say that all the time but just keep in mind that it's always better to call if you're not sure or if you have a funny feeling it's always better to call. And I'm not going to stop harping on that because I feel like a lot of people need to hear that. That's all we have for the episode today. I'm going to post pictures pertaining to the case, including, this is important, the age progression picture of Timothy and what he most likely looks like now. A lot of times when podcasts or the news shares this case, they post the older picture of six-year-old Timothy when, it, when it's important to note that he is 14, 15 years old. So, he doesn't look like is the six-year-old version of himself. So please take a minute out of your day and look at that picture. Everyone needs to look at this picture, but especially those of us in the Midwest. Take a good long look. Share his picture, share his episode, share this episode so people can get more information about him. Let's keep people talking about Timothy Pitson and hopefully soon we can give his family answers because I cannot imagine what they live with and have to stomach every single day of their lives. That's all I have for today. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new case. And then after that case, one more episode before the new year. That's insane. I cannot believe that we are almost in 2022. Like I still haven't finished. I'm still processing 2020. Like I don't know about you, but I don't know how 2022 can be right around the corner. It just doesn't seem real. It's insane. And and I'm saying that as I'm in a hotel room with my sick husband and separated from my kids and my family. So yeah, it's been a big couple years for all of us. And I just want to say to those of you listening who might have had a similar rough year and who had to suffer through 2020 like all of us, like hang in there. 2022 can't be as bad as 2020 and 2021. I know 
knock on wood, right? <laughs> Addicted to Crime podcast one year anniversary will be January 11th, 2022. And I'm already working on a big, big case for that. I've been working on it for over a week. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time, stay safe. And remember, if something feels funny, just call the police. Just tell them about it. You could be making a difference. You could be saving someone's life. Bye-bye.